Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week, I sit down with podcaster Andrew Heaton. We're going to talk about his very interesting life that has taken him around the world. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, I want you to check out American Pride Roasters Coffee, please. They were the first sponsor of this program. They are so great over there. They're based in Iowa with Dave Matthews and his team, where they roast their coffee beans right there in the heart of America. I just love aprcoffee.com. They create masterpieces for your coffee pot. Eh, you can use that, Dave, if you want that. Masterpieces in your coffee pot. No, this month, they want to put the focus on the George Washington Carver blend, which, like all of the APR blends, quite frankly, is so memorable. I'm particularly fond of the Carver blend, as you know, because I love peanut butter. And this brew brings out the flavor and the smell of peanut butter that only APR coffee can accomplish. Give it a try if you haven't already. Head over to APRCoffee.com. If you order at least two pounds of any coffee over there, uh, be sure to type in ATM, stands for at the mic. Put that in the special instructions section. When you go to checkout, you're going to get a free bag of the Reagan thrown in. That is awesome. APRCoffee.com, offer code ATM. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Andrew Heaton has lived a life all over the world. He and I sat down recently to see what he's been up to since his time at The Blaze, where all he has been, and trust me, he's covered quite a bit of territory. He has stories to tell, and he tells them on this week's edition of At The Mic. My goodness, Andrew, we've got so much ground to cover. Seriously, I'm going to get to know you through this conversation because you were one of the employees at the Blaze that I would see, but we just wouldn't cross paths all that often. So we we, we, we really... pretty much just occasionally chatted in the kitchen. I don't <laughs> like like because there there is this nice kitchen there. We would like I'd be coming in and getting I don't know my bowl of gruel or tomato paste or whatever weird thing I was eating that day, and you'd be doing your thing. Plus, I think I feel like you had weird hours. Were you there at like five a.m. or something? Oh, earlier than that. I get there ah, by four or so, and so I'm eating lunch. I'm in there. You're probably right. warming up your, your tea, I believe it was, in the morning. I Yeah, I <laughs> I rise from sleep as if from open-heart surgery each and every day of my life. So, And, and I would I would usually come in. I, I mean, I worked more than 40 hours a week, so this isn't a, a, a lethargic thing here, but but I would usually come in about 10 o'clock. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, you would you would already have had dinner, yep. and you know, or like started to go home. And like, meanwhile, I am just <laughs> barely booting up by ten a.m. Like, exactly. it'd be t- t- ten o'clock is where I'm human. I'm going to say any time before nine a.m. The uh-huh. best I can do is not actively wish for your death. Like, <laughs> it, like if you talk to me at eight thirty in the morning, yep. not actively militating for your destruction is the height <laughs> of kindness and positivity that I have. It makes dating slightly slightly difficult. And see. I'm in there warming up my lunch. It's between 9 and 10 a.m. And so I'm already exhausted because it's, you know, I've I've been there a while, blah, blah, blah. You're exhausted because you're just starting your day. And so our conversations Mm -hmm. were kind of like, so uh, what's up? You know, hey, that's yeah, a now, nice. Now that you say it, you're right. At the at the at the peak <laughs> levels of exhaustion, it's amazing we never got in a knife fight. We're very fortunate. <laughs> I think I think the the biggest conversation we had once was you were wearing uh, a very nice suit, which you often did. Thank and you. I think I just commented. I, I, think I was a said, very natty dresser. Yeah, I was just like, wow, that's a that's a nice suit you got on. It's really bold. And I think that's the extent of our conversation. So I hope that we can uh, get into cover some more territory today. 
Um, yeah, my my goal today, Keith, is to get to the point where when I'm filling out medical forms, I list you as my emergency contact. So oh let's my do this. Let's goodness. get to that point. The responsibility that, that will come with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's start. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up, man? I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, kind of in, in a pretty tight area. I, I grew up in Oklahoma City, and then my, my family moved out to Edmond, Oklahoma, which mm-hmm. is a suburb of Oklahoma City. We did that when I was maybe 10, and so I grew up kind of... Basically, where the suburbs hits the farmland. I grew oh, up right on that edge. That's the sweet spot, it was really, man. It was. I gotta say, it was really nice. Like, and, and particularly for a kid. Like, I think when you when you get to be a teenager, it's a little isolating to be that far away from stuff. But when you're a kid and you can't drive anywhere, and where would you go anyway? Right. It was wonderful because I, I was able to. I, I think every day of middle school, I think I came home every day and just went to the creek with our beagle and walked around and you know lived in my my own fantasy world. And and there was, I mean, there was plenty of land that and i gotta say this in oklahoma you have to kind of you have to kind of work to get interesting topography there's a lot of dead flat pancake shaped land with wheat on it i mean there's an abundance <laughs> of that of just like endless fields and they're not a lot of fun to play in but we had a good uh, we had a good creek nearby and you know lots of trees and woods and things and so uh yeah it was it was wonderful and like when i visit my parents they're still at that home um you know we used to hear coyotes and things mm-hmm. but at the same time while it felt kind of country where i guess our day-to-day lives were a little country we were still i don't know half an hour from a mall yeah uh you know tw- 20 minutes from the nearest I mean, not even maybe 15 minutes from the nearest restaurant so we we, we got a touch of small town but we also got a uh, we, we we weren't you know isolated or alienated which was really cool so i, I feel like it was a good place to grow up yeah, and I think that the way you describe that is absolutely the perfect setting. And I've always said I want to be just close enough to a big city whereas I can go to a professional sporting event without it having to be a vacation. You know, I want to be able to go there and back yeah. in the same day. And it sounds like that's where you kind of grew up was the kind of that sweet spot uh, on the edge of you know, suburbs and rural but I will tell you, you talk about the topography of Oklahoma. Oklahoma is truly, truly one of the most beautiful states, one of the most underrated states. The, the, Thank the you. Top- yeah, absolutely. We, we drive up there all the time, all the time. And I'm, the- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the governor and be like, listen, this Keith guy's okay. When he comes through, <laughs> let's not hassle him. We'll, we'll give him an idea or something. <laughs> well, let's see. And here's, here's the thing. When we moved from Houston, Texas to Omaha, Nebraska, it was the first time I had been in the state of Oklahoma, and we shot up straight up 35, Mm -hmm. and we both commented, my wife and I at the time, we said, you know, this this is beautiful. We had no idea. So we filed that away in our memory bank. So when we moved to Dallas about 10 or 12 years after that fact, we went up to Oklahoma, and we go up there, like I said, on a regular basis, uh, whether it's to Mm -hmm. Oklahoma City. um, There's a really nice... Um, chocolate factory on the interstate there. There's a toy museum nice. right off the interstate. Uh-huh. We never did see where the uh, Tiger King guy, I think that was up there. I think we saw the signs, but never really stopped. For There's a casino. Yeah, There's everything. He, he was right around there. He wasn't in Paul's Valley. Where was he at? He was in Winniewood, which is out near Paul's Valley. Uh-huh. He's same same general region, just kind of south of Norman, that, that area. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it is a beautiful state. I think uh, people understandably uh, do not have the same revelatory experience you have because 
there's two major highways that go through the state, and they both intersect in Oklahoma City. Or I guess there's more than that, but there's there's an east highway and a north highway. Mm-hmm. And the the east to west highway, I guess that's I forty, is pretty boring to be honest with you. And you and you like and you're on the outside of the city, so you don't see anything. So you just kind of drive by, and if if you're on I forty, you would be forgiven for thinking that it's just a very flat, boring state. Uh, but Oklahoma is the, according to the EPA, the most ecologically diverse state in the union, and oh, wow. that is because it really, it really goes quite far from east to west. So when you start, like the bottom southeast part of the state, both ecologically and culturally, is the south. When you go to Idabel or Broken Bow, they yeah. are like those are like you're in Confederate flag alligator territory. There, there are about a hundred <laughs> alligators that live indigenously in the southeast part of the state. It's also uh, where we used to have really impressive, very well armed plantations of marijuana up until about five <laughs> years ago when we legalized it. Like if you wanted to get shot taking a leak off the side of the road, southeast Oklahoma was where you wanted to go. And then if you go a little bit north of that, you hit the uh, the Wachita Mountains, which are yeah. they're they're kind of like a feeder into the the uh, the the Ozarks, uh, and right. so it's got that very like hilly gently rolling very like very very pretty in autumn kind of thing the, the whole eastern half of the state is uh hills and woodlands um and so it's nice and then the western half of the state does get very flat it's kind of like dances with wolves style <laughs> you know massive but then when you get into the panhandle then you hit uh you go you go from like you you go from hills in the east to short grass prairie to long grass prairie to the badlands when you get out to western oklahoma or to the to the panhandle of oklahoma now yeah. you're kind of in like like kind of New Mexico desert kind of territory. Yep. Um, and then you get way out there. There's a town called Kenton, which is the very tip top of that panhandle, which is on mountain time. Cause it's just, it's so far away from everything that it's really more to do with Colorado, like the nearest grocery stores in Colorado. But there's a, yeah, there's a lot of different things to it. The other thing I'll add to it, which I really think is, is worth pointing out. Uh, and by the way, I'm not getting paid by the Oklahoma tourism department, although they should, I've been doing their work <laughs> for them now for 20 years. Yeah. Um, the the other like the the night like the thing that people don't get about Oklahoma and that I think incidentally people promoting Oklahoma never get is Oklahoma has some weird weird cool stuff going on in it but you really only get to experience it if you've got a car and you know somebody that knows the area hmm. so if you look at a brochure of Oklahoma they're like Oklahoma discover the excellence like it's this horrible like boilerplate like yeah. come to Kiowa County county of many uses because like some 1950s engineer was like this will be good land of many uses and so they they and then like oklahoma city they're like we've got a basketball team and you could check out this park and they like and it's like it 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 comes off very bland what they ought to do is like they ought to talk about like we're just trying to legalize bigfoot hunting however we uh we're you can't shoot him you have to capture him but we will give you if you can capture bigfoot in oklahoma and bring them to them, bring them live. We'll give you two million dollars. We, wow. we you could get a Bigfoot license. There's an annual Bigfoot hunting festival in southeast Oklahoma, that same area I was talking about. It's a little grizzly. What time of year is the uh, big Bigfoot um, hunting season? I don't recall. I'm when meeting it is. you there. Uh, We're doing this, man. We're yeah. Gonna, I know. I'll, we can split I'll, the millions. Honestly, I'll, I'll probably do it this year. It sounds like a fun thing. There's a noodling festival, which is where you you go out in a lake and you do probably the dumbest thing you can do in a lake, which is just fumble around holes at the bottom of the lake. And when you find a hole, shove your hand in and hope a fish bites it and then pull the fish out with your hands. That's noodling. <laughs> and there's a whole thing in Paul's Valley for that. Uh, there's, um, uh, if you get into Western Oklahoma, there's like all these little towns in Western Oklahoma have uh, rattlesnake derbies. Uh, now, that's not where they race them. It's where they, they catch them because there's all these rattlesnakes that have proliferated in the Western half of the state. So these, these like whole counties will just like, 
there'll be a week into year where everybody goes out with a pillowcase and a stick and grabs rattlesnakes and puts them in and like this is weird like if you were from england or germany like <laughs> go check out new york Go check out New York. Go check out Washington. See the sights. But when you want to, like, see America, like, come mm-hmm. to the middle of the country, find a guy with a car, and be like, I want to see some weird stuff. And, like, we'll show you some weird stuff. Nice. I've been to a prison rodeo in Oklahoma. It finally got shut down, which I am greatly saddened by. Wait, there, a prison rodeo? The, yes. Okay. In McAllister, America. Down there in the this, – again, the southeast part of the state's the dangerous but interesting part of the state. Uh-huh. Uh, in McAllister, uh, there was this longstanding uh, prison rodeo. And I, I should clarify for anybody aghast at this, uh, the it was not voluntary to be a prisoner. However, the rodeo was voluntary. I see. So they never compelled any prisoners to go. You and, and in fact, they they competed to get into it because they were all really bored. You had to be on good behavior. You had to have a permission from the warden. Uh, like it was actually a, a motivating factor for for inmates at uh, at the institution down there. But if you were greenlit for it, you could you would get to participate in this rodeo, and they'd bring in a professional rodeo team, and they'd bring in a prison team, uh-huh. and you'd watch these felons. Like do roping, and there was this one event. This okay, this bit is a little bit gritty. This bit is a little bit gritty. I I understand why this off puts people, but there was an event called Money the Hard Way, where they would get all the felons out. This is the last event they do. All the felons are out, and they'd tie a hundred dollar bill to a bull's horn, and then just let her go. Oh and if no! If you could grab that hundred dollar bill, you got it. And like man, a lot of injuries oh. came out of that. Again, Hold I want to stress this. Hold all on, voluntary. Hold on a second. Okay, I've got a lot of questions here. Okay, so. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I can understand. I was going pretty fast. There's a lot of, yeah, a lot okay, of questions so, you might want clarification so, on. So to your knowledge, did any of the prisoners ever try to ride away on one of the horses at the rodeo? You know, like say, hey, I'm taking advantage of this. I'm no, out here. but <laughs> honestly, if, if, you, if you had pulled that off, if you would like, let's say you're a bank robber yeah. and you'd manage to somehow escape on a horse or better yet on a bull, we would have made you governor. Like, if uh-huh. you managed to get out and make it to another county, like, right then and there, we'd be like, all right, you're our state senator. <laughs> Very impressed with you, That's young good. man. That's good. That's okay. I don't think anybody got – I think there were a fair amount of injuries. Money the Hard Way was a little bit of a gritty event. Uh, plus, I... anybody unfamiliar with, with bull riding, they, they put, like, this, like, kind of rubber sphincter around bull testicles to really piss them off. And, yeah. man, does it work. Uh, I don't – like, man, bulls are not happy. They do not <laughs> I, like human beings. Can I, I just – I wouldn't either, for that matter. <laughs> right? Right? If bulls did that to me – I would be yeah. angry at bulls too. I mean, I, I can understand and, and, that relationship. And, and this is where my weird, like, like the the Oklahoma <laughs> version of PETA, which I guess I am, is like I think you should count animals at rodeos as their own team. Like, I think like if the bull, if the bull can successfully buck a guy off within like three seconds, like nobody's ever to ride him more than like the bull wins. Good job, yeah. bull. Then that bull, like you, I don't know, you bring the bull cows to mate with and yeah. you bring him his favorite chili or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, what rewards there are for bulls, but I feel like I feel like bulls usually actually win. Like very few people, no mm-hmm. one actually defeats a bull if you think about it. To defeat a bull, you would need to ride that bull so hard it eventually just laid down and rolled over <laughs> and let you pet it. And that never happens. It's, yeah. just, it's only a question of how long you can go before the bull defeats you. So I feel right. like they deserve some credit. But in any event, they're pissed off because their testicles are getting squeezed real bad. I, again, kill you. I can totally respect that. So we yeah. spent some time yeah. in Broken Bow, that area of uh, southeast uh-huh. Oklahoma. I will say the scariest grocery store we've ever been in it was in, I think it was Broken Bow. It was one of the uh, mountain towns up there. Oh my yeah. goodness! You, you gotta hope a, uh, an oh, inspector doesn't uh, show up there. But it was a fun. I mean, I love the natural beauty of the area, and you're right. It's a Oklahoma is a secret, and let's now yeah. that we've spent 
you know, 20 minutes here uh, praising <laughs> it and stuff and giving away that secret. Let's hope it doesn't get ruined like other states in this country have. One more thing, that, that same region of the state, I think it's in, uh, I think it's Tallahina. Um, I went to the only non-name brand drive through Mexican restaurant I've ever been to in my life. Like, it, it wasn't Taco Bell or, or Taco <laughs> Bueno. It was like Mr. Taco or something. And I'm going in there and I'm ordering tacos and I can see, I can clearly see bullet holes in the drive through window. And I, I go, you know, I'll have a Dr. Pepper, or I, this part of the state, probably Mr. Pibb. I'll have a Mr. Pibb, and I'll have my, you know, double-decker taco, whatever. And I was like, are those bullet holes? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what are they from? They're like, oh, those? What are they? Okay, so uh, Cindy's ex-boyfriend uh, came by, and, and, and he, had a, he, he had a beef to settle, and he, he, he did fire some shots into the place. Uh, so, yeah, that's from Cindy's ex-boyfriend, Mitch. And I was like... And is he in jail now? And there's this pause, and the guy turns around and goes, "Did they ever arrest Mitch?" And I'm like, "Oh my! How did you not look into this? Right? A guy friggin' shot at your—he shot holes into your taco drive-through, and you never bothered following up on it. I, I was—I was just amazing. Boy, how was the food? I don't recall. I was too <laughs> overwhelmed by by the bullet, be the inexplicable bullet holes, or at least the. The uh, uh, incomplete bullet hole story to really uh-huh. focus on the, uh, the the calories. I'm sure that they were they're very filling. Okay, well, it's a state with many stories. I'll say that. But you have absolutely fascinated me about the Mountain Time Zone. Uh, fun fact that the the one town I don't know that I'd have to look at a map to refresh my memory. But uh, I'm I'm kind of a time zone geek, a map geek, and I mm-hmm. just I'm trying to think of. Uh, I think I thought Oklahoma was completely central. So there's one town. There's one town, one town. in Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I think that's fascinating. I always try to, whenever we're going up to Yellowstone or the Black Hills or something, I just try to see how quickly I can get across the panhandle from Texas mm-hmm. uh, into Kansas. I, so years ago, to completely jump geographic units, uh, I used to be Eastern Orthodox, so like Greek okay. Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And uh, right when I graduated college, uh, I, I went to Europe to, to backpack around, and I ended up going to Mount Athos. Uh, Mount Athos is the, it's it's a section of Greece. Like, if you're looking at Greece, it kind of looks like three fingers. The top finger is Mount Athos, and it is it is the Republic of Monks. So, like, imagine if, imagine if Rhode Island were just populated by monks, and, like, the governor was an abbot. That's, there's just this section of Greece that's just monks. And uh, I went and hung out there for a few days, and... Those guys, man, they're super holdouts. They use Byzantine time. So when you get in and you get off the ferry, because it, it's inaccessible due to mountains, you get off the ferry, you have to, you have to, you have, you have to look and see what Byzantine time is compared to, I don't know what they call it, world time or whatever. Because I, as near as I can figure, they're still using sundials, and so they're like, no, here at this place, it is 4:42 p.m. Over there in Athens, they're claiming it's five o'clock. It's not. It's but they're like hyper local. They've never agreed to switch to whatever the unified time zone is. They never got into that whole daylight savings time. They're like whatever the sundial is in uh, the the principal monastery of Mount Athos. That's what they're using. That is weird. I could understand mm-hmm. almost like okay, they're they're an hour off, or even some places, even in Canada, they're thirty minutes off. But you're telling me oh, really interesting. that it's like 18 minutes or 12 minutes off or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's something weird like that, right? And it's <laughs> it, it like, I, you know, they're, they're probably never going to have a real kick in factory system there. I don't think they're going to have a great industrial industrial output there on Mount Athos. Uh, Mount Athos. Uh, but, uh, but it was interesting. But, I mean, but the whole place is, I mean, it's, 
you're 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 dipping into something that is a couple uh, coming up on a couple thousand years old and, and likes it that way. So yeah. it, it's, there's a lot of atavism baked in. Okay, all right. So you're living in Oklahoma right now. Between yes. us knowing each other in Dallas, you went out to California, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I left the Blaze in July, June of 2019. And uh, I, I I wasn't really in Dallas long enough to to get to 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 be enamored with it. Uh, there right. are some cool things in Dallas that I liked. I really like the Sons of Herman Lodge in Dallas. It's a fun uh-huh. place to go swing dancing. Oh wow! Uh, and so there there are there are some cool things. But I I just wasn't there long enough, and so I just kind of took off. I was like, nah, I didn't I didn't put down roots. And mm-hmm. to to be blunt, because I think that Dallas is kind of Oklahoma City's older, hotter sister. <laughs> I already know Oklahoma City pretty well, so if I'm going to live in one of the two, I would rather live in Oklahoma City. Right. Um, so, I I bounced around a little bit. I, I went down to Austin. I've got some good friends in Austin. I stayed with them and uh, checked out Portland, checked out uh, Colorado, did some traveling, and then mm-hmm. ended up deciding that I would move out to Los Angeles uh, because I'm a comedian and I I wanted to do I wanted to keep doing political stuff, but I wanted to do non-political stuff and mm-hmm. sort of expand my career portfolio. And I thought, well, that'd be a good way to do it. I'll go out there, I'll network, I'll meet people. At the very least, I'll be able to go on a lot more podcasts. I'll be able to get additional interesting guests on my podcasts. So I, I moved out to Los Angeles. Which, about by the way, this, let, well, let, allow me um, just, and we'll get back to this, but um, the name of your podcast is Alienating the Audience, Correct. Well, I've got two. So I've got the Political Orphanage, which is the main podcast. So the the Political Orphanage is a politics and comedy podcast, and okay. it's for people who are not super enamored with red team or blue team. So if you're ever if you're ever watching the news and you're like, most of this is just partisan bile rather than anything making me smarter or understand the situation better. Sure. If, if you've ever had that thought, then I'd <laughs> encourage you to check out the Political Orphanage okay. because that might be for you. There's a okay. lot of us that are independence or whatever the other one's alienating the audience which is a sci-fi podcast so that I one my pitch to you is if you listen to five episodes of alienating the audience in uh-huh. a row you will grow back your virginity it's that nerdy it's very <laughs> high octane science okay. fiction but these both both podcasts have incredibly awesome names okay the Thank political you. orphanage that is mm-hmm. that's just genius right there and then alienating the audience i mean i don't know if that's is that kind of tipping toward you know aliens? Is that what we're doing there? Um, you know, it, it, it's a really it's a good pun that my my good friend and former producer Josh Jennings came up with because yeah. uh, when I was doing something's off with Andrew Heaton on the Blaze, right. About once a month, I would just do I do an episode that was just kind of the politics of science fiction, where we talk about like. Uh, the economics of Dune, or we'd talk about, uh, is Batman libertarian or something like that. <laughs> and, but it was so nerdy that we were like, there's no way anybody's going to, like, like this This is what's going to get us canceled, is <laughs> we keep doing this. And so Jennings was like, we should call this segment alienating the audience, because <laughs> it was basically like, I was like, every time I was like, all right, you all put up with that. Let's see if you can put up with this. And then nice. I would I would try and like outdo the same. And basically what happened was about a quarter of the audience went, not for me. And about three quarters of the audience went, please quit your job and do this full time. Like they loved it. And so I went, okay. And so I ended up, um, I ended up just splitting it, making it, so making it its own program and now do both of them. Very cool. Okay. So you ended up back in Oklahoma. Was it 2020 that, that convinced you don't be in California, be in Oklahoma? Yeah. So I, I moved out to Los Angeles again, Keith, for the networking in January of 2020, 
And oh. I got an apartment in mid-February of 2020 for a year-long oh. lease in the most expensive apartment I've ever had. Now, I it was 500 square feet, studio apartment, didn't have a porch. But I thought, well, it doesn't matter that it's only 500 square feet with no porch. I'm not going to be in here that much. I'm going to be out in Los Angeles performing oh, no. comedy and going to movie star parties and things. And uh, turns out I basically was in solitary confinement in a 500-square-foot box for... Uh, several months, and uh, and and didn't really know very many people in Los Angeles, so um, I couldn't meet anybody. I certainly mm-hmm. couldn't date, and uh, I, I really like. And you know, I, I had a couple of friends I could visit, but that was about it. So it was man, it was lonely and bad and not fun. And the other thing is, there are positive things about Los Angeles, and none of those positive things apply to me. Mm. I am not a beach person. I think beaches are just a desert with a hole at the end. I don't care. I don't like <laughs> if I never went to another beach for the rest of my life, I wouldn't remotely care. I'll go if like a friend, ideally a friend with a cute bikini invites me, I'll go. <laughs> but I'm only going to go if you invite me. And even then I'm probably going to do it a maximum of once a year because uh, this is the other thing. Like what do you do when you go to the beach? You either get drunk or you get really hot and pass out. So it's like, hey, do you want to come be hot and tired with me on a desert next to a hole? No, that sounds uh-huh. horrible. And I would much rather go to the mountains or go to a lake or like hike around a forest or something. I, I don't like deserts. I don't like the relentless sunshine of Los Angeles. I like I'm not a, I'm not a summer guy. I'm a fall and winter guy. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, and, and and on top of that, like, man, like they're Los Angeles is entirely relying on the weather to make up for the fact that it is one of the ugliest cities ever produced by mankind. It, mm-hmm. it like just. It's it's like the it's it's like take a bunch of cinder blocks and smear lipstick on them and go look it's pretty that's Los Angeles it's just this Adobe dumpster with endless endless traffic and nothing but ugly squat brick shaped strip malls like I just every day I would walk around that place and be like I I, I literally Keith the last thing I did in Los Angeles before I left was I wrote a uh, a poetry anthology that'll come out this year called Los Angeles is hideous. It's just poems about how ugly that city is. So uh, around like early summer, I I think I'd been there six months and I was like, this is just, this is stupid. And I uh, took a couple of months, finally got out of my lease and uh, got out uh, in September. I I hadn't even, I'd been gone a couple of months too. I went back to Oklahoma just to hang out, but I came back, settled my lease in September, got out of there, uh, drove away from Los Angeles. I couldn't even take my furniture with me because so many other people were leaving Los Angeles that I couldn't, I couldn't rent a U-Haul. So I could only take things I could put in my SUV. I just had to like fire, fireside sale, uh, all of my stuff, uh, and, um, kept driving, shot past Oklahoma, went to the Memphis area and I bought a 13 foot fiberglass camper from an 86 year old man named Dave who sold it to me because Dave just got married and he did not think it was big enough for him and his wife to travel in. And he's uh, 86. So hats off to Dave. Yeah. Congrats, um, huh? Dave. How, yeah, how old is to Dave? Dave's wife though? I mean, did he married. Oh, I think, same... I, I think he's a cradle rock. You know, I didn't ask her name, but she seemed like a very sprightly, like 72 or something. I think he, <laughs> uh, I think he's, he, he definitely robbed a cradle. Uh, and, uh, no, he's a really nice guy. I bought that and lived out of that for the next five months, just lived out of a 13 foot camper. And, um, I, I went back to California, but I went to Oakland because I wanted to collaborate with a journalist friend of mine, Justin Robert Young, uh, during the election. So I was out in Oakland during that time. That way we could guest on each other's shows and kind of, uh, you know, be, be sort of combine forces and, 
um, which was great. I'm not a huge fan of Oakland, but but I do love forests, and there's really good forests in Northern California. So I would basically I would just park on the street during the week, and I'd I'd live in Justin's neighborhood, and then Friday would come around, and I would drive to a redwood forest, and I'd just live in a forest and uh, hang out and go on walks and enjoy the trees. Huh. And uh, once the election was over, I drove back to Austin, Texas, and parked in my friend Brian Brushwood's. Uh, backyard, uh, or his, he's got a studio, and I pa- I parked adjacent to it, so I wasn't just at his house. Stayed there for about a month, and uh, then came back to Oklahoma for Christmas, and I've I've been there since. And uh, then you. I got a um, I got a grant from a group called Tulsa Remote. Uh, Tulsa Remote is a private organization trying to induce, uh, I guess, creative people and uh, interesting young people. Or actually, I don't I don't know if it's an age thing, but 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 in- interesting people and creative people. They're trying to get them to come to Tulsa, and so. If they if you do it and they uh, greenlight you and you get the grant, um, if you move to Tulsa and you live there for a year, they give you ten thousand dollars at the end of it. Mm. And so I got that and I was like, well, I mean, it, it makes as much sense to me in Tulsa as anywhere else during lockdown, and it's a lot cheaper in Oklahoma. Yeah. And my family has this old lake house I can visit, and I can have dinner with my parents, and they're going to give me ten thousand dollars. All of this points to smart move to move to Tulsa. And so absolutely, I am poised to move there. I've, I've got a, I just got approved for an apartment. I'll be moving to Tulsa here in about two weeks. Very good. Okay, so let's go back to your college days, because okay. you have quite a bit that you've accomplished as far as what you've studied and degrees. So you went to the University of Oklahoma where you yes, studied the Harvard history, of Oklahoma. The Harvard of Oklahoma, history and religious studies. Mm-hmm. Then That's right, af- yeah. after that, you went to the University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah. International politics was your courses mm-hmm. there, your your field of mm-hmm. study. Then you studied abroad at Oxford. You've studied abroad at Peking University in China. I mean, you have made the rounds not only internationally, but you've also covered a lot of ground as far as education and topics that you seem interested in. What motivated you to learn in so many different avenues, man? Like like most people like me, right? Okay, let's just take me. I went to school, University of Nebraska, for journalism, broadcasting, right? I had to pick three minors, so I did that, geography, history, English. But you are all over the map here. It's fascinating. What what was the motivation for you to cover so many unique areas that don't seem connected to each other but probably are, and I just don't see that? uh, Maybe. I don't know. I I would like to think that there was some sort of cohesive vision that was was putting them all there. I I think the short answer is I I have— I'm interested in a lot of things, and it's very painful for me to give up interests. Hmm. When I was in college, I, I, I jumped around quite a lot, so I, I got accepted to the University of Oklahoma on a drama scholarship and oh, was wow. going to go go do drama there, uh, but I, I decided against it because I, I, this, I am aware of how insane what I'm about to say sounds. I did not think drama would be very good for making a living, whereas history and religious studies struck me as more of a a thing you could get traction in, which is also nuts because it's not like there's a big history factory in town <laughs> or, uh, you know, and I, I wasn't very poised to become a televangelist, but um, I really liked history. I, I really love history. Uh, I've actually got a history podcast that's going to come out here in the next couple of months. I, I, I love history because it, it, it's dealing with stories, which I love, and it's also dealing with ideas. Like, I really like, I really like ideas. I like uh, studying ideology, studying philosophy, studying religion, and, and that is a thoroughfare that went through it. Um, with religious studies... I was super religious when I was in college. As I said, I was Eastern Orthodox, and I, 
I didn't plan to become a priest, but I suspected that I would eventually become one. In, uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you can get married and become a priest. It's not like Catholicism. Hmm. Um, so uh, so I, I had kind of thought that that would probably be what I ended up doing in my 50s or 60s. Um, given that I am now an agnostic, that seems less likely. But at the time, it seemed like a thing that might happen. And so I did that. I, I did um, uh, a study abroad at Oxford, as you point out, in archaeology when I was an undergraduate. So that was a part of the history program uh, and got to um, go study at Bracenose College, which was super cool. Got to travel around England on weekends with my friend, which was also wonderful. Um, did a, a study abroad in um, Peking, China uh, when I was a senior. Uh, well, actually, I did a study abroad kind of all throughout China because it was a, it was a program where we, we traveled around, but, but Peking University was, I think, the major point in it, um, which was also fascinating. And I've, I've been back to China once since then. I went first time for educational purposes through that study abroad. Second time, I went uh, here two years ago uh, because I was invited to perform stand-up comedy at the uh, uh, China International Stand-Up Competition in Shanghai. And um, fascinating to compare the two because it's locked down significantly since when I was over there. It was opening up when I first came there, and it is it has become more authoritarian and mm-hmm. uh, more restrictive yeah. uh, in in recent years. And it's oh, you palpable. better check your social credit score. You know, yes, it's it's just dystopian. I, I'm 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 very glad I got out of there okay because I was just like I would just call my my parents and rant about these communists and like <laughs> and I'm sure I was being bugged and like they fortunately they let me out, but I, I don't know if I should go back. Right. Um, well, hold on. Hold on. And, hold on. Because. Uh, I want to hear your experience in China, but I got to be honest with you. Um, I'm I'm still kind of hung up on you did a stand up competition in China. Was there a language barrier, or what? What kind of what kind of competition are we talking no, about? So so stand up comedy as a art form, I guess, or as as a as a field of of entertainment is relatively new to China. I mean, it's huh. relatively new in general. Like 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 stand up comedy doesn't go back 400 years. I mean, stand-up comedy really comes about maybe in the 40s or yeah. 50s. Like, it kind of... Bob Newhart that, was a pioneer had, um, in stand-up yeah, comedy. That's really exactly, where it yeah, hit but, mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lenny Bruce and Bob Newhart, I think, are kind of the first generation of them. Prior to that, they're, like, we have kind of a grandfather of comedy, which is like Vorst Belt and... Uh, um, when you just had kind of itinerant travelers that would come from town to town and do funny shows, and they uh-huh. would just do live shows. But, but it was much more of like singing and tap dancing and saying funny things and it was very like corny like the old like if you listen to old tapes it was very very corny um so that that was around for a while and then before that you just had storytelling right um so stand-up comedy has been around you know maybe since the 40s i think in, in america it's it's a pretty new entrant to china that like i i know some of the guys that brought it to china and uh and it like really didn't happen till maybe the 2000s in china so it's new and as a result uh, stand-up comedy was and is a an English phenomenon in China. It's done by people that speak English. So you've got uh, a mix of um, Americans who are living in China, and maybe they're teaching English or they're working for something, but they're doing stand-up comedy for fun. Um, or, or they might be visiting from other countries. There's actually like a really interesting group of... Um, of comedians that just do a kind of Southeast Asian circuit. They'll do comedy festivals in India, then they'll go to Thailand, then they'll go to China, and they'll kind of, the the cost of living is so low that they can basically just do that. Like, they can just kind of hit event to event. But is there a language barrier along the way? No, because... Uh, well, and I'll say, the, and then there's also Chinese people who speak English, but the, but the the comedy itself is in English. Now they're starting to branch out. They're starting to be stand up comedy in China in Mandarin, hmm. uh, but that's that's somewhat new. But like it, like as little as like ten years ago, if you were going to perform stand up comedy in China, you were doing it for an English speaking audience. I see, and that might be Chinese people that spoke English, but that was still going to be the medium 
that was going on. So when I, I got to finals, I did pretty well for a, a, a white dude that doesn't live in China or speak Mandarin. I got to, <laughs> to finals, which is good. There, there was a little bit of a cultural barrier. Um, they surprised me because some of the jokes that I had, I didn't think would work at all. And some of the like, so, so, so like, I, I, I'm not going to go into stand up mode with you. I'm just going to relay the information, but I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to do the timbre of it. But I, but I have a joke where I go, uh, you know, hello, I'm from Oklahoma, the Canada of Texas. And like the room cracked up and I was like, wow. Okay. Like, I didn't think you all would have any idea where, you know, the, the spatial relationship between the two, but that worked okay. Um, they're, they're also, it's interesting in that their electric fences are very different than our electric fences. So like in America, now granted, stand-up comedy is pretty anti-authoritarian and, the, and PC stuff has really not crept into stand-up comedy much. Um, comedians tend to be, stand-up comedians in particular, tend to be very vigilant about like, no, this is my space. I get to like, I'm here to make jokes. You're here to listen to them. If you don't like them, leave. Like you, you don't find a lot of like uh, canceling for stand-up comedians. Right. And, and you'd be surprised in... Like what, what? What would not fly on Twitter or on TV will fly in a stand-up club. That said, though, um, I am aware when I do live performances, if I start making jokes about like men and women are different, or or something like that, you can feel a little bit of discomfort because people are like, "Oh man, he's bringing up like if you bring up race or gender, like it's they're very heated topics right now." Um, Chinese don't care about that at all. Like you're, you're you're fine. You could you could crack jokes in China that are like we would consider like kind of inappropriate 1950s. Uh, like, you know, like house, dumb housewife jokes would, would probably be okay, I think, based on my time there. Mm. Uh, what they're not okay with is it is forbidden by law. Like, you are not legally allowed to make jokes about Taiwan, Tiananmen Square, Tibet, any living member of the Politburo or the Communist Party. Um, so, like, even if it's positive, you can't talk about the, the Politburo in any way, shape, or form. And so, like, I did one joke where all I'm trying to do is get to a joke about cell phones. Like, it's just like we're, we're too attached to cell phones, and I've got a joke about that, right? That's right. all I'm trying to get to. But uh, but I can't because China has banned Google, um, Google Search and Facebook and Gmail. Like, when I got to China, not knowing that, I had no means to, like, even figure out where I was supposed to go for my Airbnb. It was kind of hard. And oh. I, I mentioned, like, yeah, like I like, I'm aware of how connected i am to my phone like i couldn't access gmail and like you could just hear every sphincter in the room go just like every single person was was like oh no and it was because they were afraid i was going into that danger territory uh and i didn't uh but but uh that club eventually got shut down and uh the guys got run out uh they uh you you have to get permission from the chinese government you have to you have to get licensed as an entertainer in china and uh, if, if I had, for some reason, decided to stay there and be a stand-up comedian in China, not only would I have had to be licensed, I would have had to take all of my jokes to the cultural ministry and submit uh. the jokes to them to uh. see which ones are approved and which ones are bad. And uh, I hate that in every single level of my being, just mm-hmm. like politically, ideologically, and also as a comedian, I despise that. And, uh, um, yeah, so restrictive place, but yeah, did, did that. And so I've been able to compare and contrast that. And I got into international politics because you mentioned my master's degree in Edinburgh. I had worked for Congress for a year and was doing stand-up comedy at night while I was working for Congress. And at the time, being a dude from Oklahoma hadn't really internalized that anybody would ever pay me to be funny. That seemed like a real crazy pipe dream. And what I needed to do was get a suit and tie job with a 401k and be funny at night. Maybe in my 40s, I'd figure out how to make money being funny. And I'd, I'd somehow transfer to an affiliated group in New York. And maybe I, and so it was this very slow, deliberate, risk-averse process. And I, uh, I got a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation to, to get a master's degree in Edinburgh. 
uh, which is my favorite city. It's a wonderful place. And so I did that in international and European politics with the idea that I would return to Washington and I would probably, hopefully, if I passed the test, wind up working for the State Department or I would work for a think tank or maybe I'd go back to Congress. And uh, um, so that had been the idea. And I came back to D.C. I kept doing uh, comedy when I was in Edinburgh. Uh, I was the resident comedian at Edinburgh Saturnalia Cabaret. So I, I literally came up and told jokes in between a lady who took her clothes off and a guy that ate light bulbs. And I think that was probably the height of my comedy career. <laughs> I feel like that really fit me well. Yeah. Um, so I was doing comedy at night. I, I was learning about politics during the day, international politics. Came back to D.C. and wasn't making the career moves that I, I wanted to. I, I just I, I ended up becoming a, a Segway tour guide. And I, I finally went, well, this is just dumb. Like, I'm, I'm not even doing the respectable adult job in D.C. I'm not I don't have the 401k. If I'm doing odd jobs, why don't I just do them in New York? So I packed up and I moved to New York and uh, uh, ended up getting hired as a TV writer pretty quick. And um, and then I've, I've kind of been doing some combo of politics, media, and comedy ever since. Okay. So, and when you were over in Scotland, you were also a history tour guide while you were there? Yeah. So I've lived in Scotland twice. I When I graduated from, okay. from undergraduate, I lived in Britain for a year. I lived in England for six months, and then I lived in Scotland for six months and had a great time. I had a hard time in England. It's very... It's di- like like there's a lot of good things about England, but their 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 sense of extroversion is very different than Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And and I was going from not only being from Oklahoma, but being in college, which is the most extroverted. Like I, I dated a woman at one point because I just met her in line getting pizza and was like, "You seem cool. Come have lunch with me and my friends." That, <laughs> England is much. You sort of make friends the same way you would like sneak up on a rabbit. Like it's a very passive, very slow like. Approach people from the side, give them some space kind of environment. <laughs> Scotland, super drunk, fun place. Scotland's easy to make friends. You just go into a pub and you're like, I'm from America. We're friends now. And you buy people drinks and then you got friends. And uh, <laughs> so I became a tour guide in Edinburgh and uh, was great at it. I honestly think the most competent I've ever been at any job was as a Scottish tour guide uh, because all of my skills as an entertainer come to the fore. Oh, okay. Paired with the fact that I, I, I have a degree in history. Yeah. And if you're thinking... Well, it's weird that an American would be a really good Scottish tour guide. I was. Um, keep in mind the the second, yeah. The, well, the second the Scots got hired by the company, they would leave and go to a sunny country. They'd all they all wanted to go to Spain or to Italy. They didn't want to hang out in Scotland. And then the other bit too is that I think anytime you're from a place, there's a tendency to kind of take things for granted and not really just they're just kind of background to you, and so you're not super you're, you're not proactively researching them. But for me. Um, I had a degree in it, so I actually knew what I was talking about because I'd, right. I'd studied um, a lot of like uh, 17th century through 19th century British history and Scottish history. So I actually knew a lot of the stuff going on outside of the script. But beyond that, I was just genuinely interested in it. And so okay. um, even though I didn't have the, the brogue that, that some of the Scots had, I, I'll, I'll argue that pound for pound, I was actually much better at, at telling stories and telling information. And uh, so yeah, I did that. And then when I when I came back and I was getting my my master's degree, I I did that just on weekends for grocery money. So I've been a tour guide over there twice. Um, it's actually funny. There's there's a coffee shop I used to go to in Edinburgh that has a placard on the wall that says J.K. Rowling never wrote here, because it's the only coffee shop in Edinburgh that doesn't claim that she wrote Harry Potter while sitting in it. Since that's funny. Like Fifteen shops that all claim that. That was some of the the the, the pop culture. We talk about Braveheart some. 
You know, mm-hmm. so that came up. Mel Gibson came up. Trump came up a little bit at the time because um, there, there, there used to be this big statue of in in uh, Sterling mm-hmm. um, at the the William Wallace Monument. There used to be this statue of basically Mel Gibson. Like it was a statue of William Wallace, but it was made in like the late '90s or early 2000s. So it was literally just a Mel Gibson statue, and the the locals didn't like it because they thought it was more Mel Gibson than William Wallace, and it ended up getting. <laughs> Uh, purchased by Donald Trump to put on a Scottish golf course. And I would make this joke. This is in 2008. I would go, Donald Trump, our next president, and everybody would laugh and laugh at the <laughs> prospect of a game show host becoming president, and then we would keep walking. And it was bad. Man, was that weirdly prescient. Wow. No kidding. Um, that's kind of how I look at Dwayne The Rock Johnson, our future president. The Rock would yeah. not surprise me. It would not. I, not. I think he'd. I think he would actually. I think he would have. I think he could probably take a nomination in in a party if he were. To I run. have. I think he no would have a great chance at it. Doubt that he could. Exactly. So, um, a, a, another job. Plus, was, plus those those wrestlers. Like everybody thinks they're dumb. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is not dumb. He is mm-hmm. a smart guy. He's a yeah. smart guy who is relentless and energetic and figured out that like his way to become. A wealthy celebrity in America was to become a bodybuilder. And I think Dwayne The Rock Johnson's, I think, in the same camp. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he had a really high IQ and was really curious. Yeah, Might be a dumb guy. I frankly doubt it. I think given how successful he is, I think he's probably really smart. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And I think he would also know how to work a room no matter what. So, Oh, yeah, for sure. I have to ask, and... I don't know if you want to tell me, but uh, who are you a congressional staffer for in D.C.? Yeah, I mean that's public record. I don't, I don't have any <laughs> problem doing that. I, I worked for two guys. Uh, I worked. I started out for Dan Boren, who's a great guy. Dan Boren is a. Uh, he's now retired, but he was a congressman at the time from Eastern Oklahoma. Okay. Um, kind of, kind of uh, from about where I'm at right now. He was based out of Muskogee, which is like one county over from where I'm at. And then I worked for Tim Holden out of Pennsylvania. Uh, Tim is Tim is also now out of Congress, and uh, I was I was working. I, I explicitly wanted to work for Blue Dog Democrats, who are basically extinct at this point. Right. But at the time, like base, up until the Tea Party, the Blue Dogs were a force to be reckoned with within the House. They were the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, and they would end up kind of being the. They, they'd kind of be like a, a break force on on democratic spending because there were a lot of fiscal conservatives they were Democrats but they like you know cared about the budget were concerned about deficit spending were concerned about uh, debt and things like that um, there, there were also I should say there were also people who were not that at all but were socially conservative that I didn't have a lot to do with but 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 there there was this kind of moderate conservative wing of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. the Tea Party came in and, and largely um, rather than toppling progressive Democrats, a lot of the gains the Tea Party made was toppling conservative Democrats and making them Republicans. So I, I actually think that that was worse for both the Republican and the Democratic Party because it would have mm. been better to have that that intermediate group. But uh, I worked for both of them, and I and okay. I was I was you know entrenched in that that uh, that blue dog part, and uh, um, yeah yeah and had a great time. It was a really fun experience. Okay, I want to um, talk about what you list as the job that you were the worst at, and it's being a bartender in Washington, D.C. And I wondered, yeah. like, did you keep a cheat sheet? Why were you so bad at it, according to you? I was a bartender. When, when I quit working for Dan, I was there for a limited amount of time. I didn't get let go or anything. But um, when, when I quit working for him, I, I hadn't been hired by Tim yet. And so I became a bartender in between my, my stints in Congress and uh, got hired as a bartender at a, a restaurant called B. Smith's. So if you ever come into 
Union Station, the train station in Washington, D.C., when you're leaving the train, B. Smith's was the the furthest left you could go. It, it actually is in the part of the, the station that used to be uh, the presidential uh, train depot. So in the same way that there's Air Force One, there used to be a presidential train area that was just for the president and the first lady. Um, wow. They could deboard at and come in at. It's where I think they shot, uh, I want to say Garfield. Was it? No, it wasn't Garfield. It was... Uh, McKinley, I think, got shot there. Some guy was angry that he hadn't been appointed postmaster general and just shot him as he was leaving around that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, I got hired there as a bartender. And partly, I think it was just the way they had it structured. So, the, the, like, they had a bar, but then they also had a really, really big restaurant attached to the bar. And the bartender was making the drinks for both. And a lot of the time, it was just you. So, you might have like six people in the bar, but you might have 30 people ordering drinks in the uh, um, the main area, which I guess might be how normal bartenders work. Again, I'm not claiming I was good at this at all. Uh, but the, the main thing was I, I had, I'd been like a bartender for like a week or two when I was in England. I just I was in this little town called Dorking. And like when you're a bartender in a small English town, you're just pulling pints. It's just like, what drink do you want? I'll have an ale. <laughs> Great. Here you go. Like that's the extent of it. And if you're like really fancy, you have like a wine spritzer. Like, But it's not complicated. You're, you're not mixing stuff. They're not really big on cocktails. Uh, whereas... At B. Smith's, man, it was, oh, the drinks were, people would come in and go like, I'll have a chocolate unicorn teeny with a, a, a zing twist. And I'd be like, oh, God, all right, hold on. And then I'd, I'd nip back to the back and be like, what the hell is this thing? Ugh. And I, and it was just, I constantly was having to do that. I guess if I'd done it long enough, I probably would have got good at it, but <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't good at all. They, uh, the, the owner nicknamed me Earthquake. And uh, I'm, I'm frankly astonished they didn't fire me. I wouldn't have been, I, like, there would have been no hard feelings if they'd fired me. If ever there were a job to fire me from, that was it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a difficult time keeping up with the drink orders. I, I didn't know all the drinks. It was just, yeah, it was, I wasn't good at it. Uh, right. I, I don't miss it. It gave me a lot of respect for bartenders. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've been dying to ask you this question. Uh, in fact, I got to be honest with you, Andrew, after you responded to the email that I sent with the questions on it, I thought we should make the centerpiece of this podcast this one question. When you worked at mm. the Oklahoma City Zoo, okay, mm. and mm. you manned the carousel, but mm. you also protected children from getting hit by sea lions at the dolphin show, and That's I got to right. I gotta ask yes. you, this, is, this has been the most burning question, is there a difference between sea lions and seals. Yes, there are. I I huh. can't um I can't give you a like proper zoologist response here, but basically seals are a lot more streamlined looking okay. whereas sea lions are much larger and boxy. Huh. So like I I could spot the difference today. If you see what appears to be <laughs> like like if one of them looks like a wrestler and one of them looks like a dancer in the okay. world of aquatic mammals. The dancer is the seal. The wrestler is the sea lion. And yeah, as you point out, my my so I I, I did a bunch of things. That was my first job at the Oklahoma City Zoo, age sixteen, and I did a bunch of things. Uh, but the main one was operating the carousel, which it, it, it's re- in retrospect, it's funny because I as a sixteen year old who never had a job, I resented having to get up and go to work. I'm like, oh, I've got to get up at you know six. I've got to be at the the zoo by eight. I have to work there probably part-time. I don't think it was even a full-time job, but I resented it. And now I look back and I'm like, half the time I would just turn the carousel on and read a book <laughs> and just like sit on it. Like it was what, like it wasn't, there were hard parts to the job. There were also some pretty easy parts to the uh-huh. job where you just basically sit around for a while. And, uh, and then, and then the other cool thing too was like, 
like I would now pay to do this. Like when, when I was in Southeast Asia, I donated some money to a zoo in Cambodia to be a, a, a zookeeper for bears for a day, but I had to pay them to do it. Oh, wow. And like conversely, when I was 16, a little bit after lunch, I would go to the dolphin show and it was my job to be a crowd control guy. Huh. Um, and the, what I was explicitly meant to do was the, the dolphin show had uh, uh, dolphins and seals and sea lions. And Sea lions don't have great vision. They have kind of blurry vision. And your fingers kind of look like shrimp to them from their blurry vision perspective. So (laughs) if if a child were to wander up and wiggle their fingers in its face and try and pet it, there's a decent chance the sea lion would eat their fingers. And so it was my job to ensure that no child got close enough to a sea lion to get its fingers bitten off. And I'm happy to report no Mm -hmm. child ever did on my watch. Okay, so you protected children from the animals. How about at the carousel? What was the most um, memorable uh-oh moment that you can think of? Or was it pretty much uh, vanilla as far as uh, what was happening you on know, the, the carousel? The thing, that, the, 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 the thing that stands out about that is just how dated in time that was. I was working with my best friend, Andrew Young, and they by the end of the experience, they realized they shouldn't put us together because we would like steal golf carts and things and go joyriding. But for a while, <laughs> they'd let us work in the same area. And um, this is before digital cameras existed. So when a lot of the time, some family would go, hey, can you take our picture? And I'd go, sure. And, and either Young or I would do this. The other one would absolutely photobomb them. So we'd take the picture, but the other person would be, you know, waving and, and you know, putting their tongue out and all that kind of thing. And, like, they wouldn't find out for three weeks. Uh, and so <laughs> that stands out. The, the, the carousel was kind of blasé. Like, it was, it yeah. was kind of the, – the, the bad things about the carousel were, one, I did have to – to like polish the um, the poles, which was which was kind of labor intensive, and then the other thing about it was that when the when the carousel was operating, there was this, there was only one song that played. It was oh no, we are apes at the zoo, or we are monkeys at the zoo. I can't remember, but it was just a series of like explaining what gibbons and lemurs and gorillas and chimpanzees are, and they all had different voices. You know, the, and, and man, that was tedious. Uh, I, like, I'm not going to sing it for you, but it was. I'm sure it's burned into my brain. Yeah. The fun part of that job was that after I would do the dolphin show stuff, when the dolphin sh- show stopped, um, I was I was chummy with the dolphin trainers, and I would get to play catch with the dolphins for 15 minutes or so when oh, everybody nice. left. Um, and just kind of in this cool down period. And, um, and that was really cool. Like I just like, that was, again, I look back and I'm like, I got to friggin' play catch with dolphins. And I resented <laughs> this job. That was a really cool thing. And I uh, got cool. to like the most sublime moment of truly communicating with an animal I've ever had occurred at the zoo. Uh, when I was playing catch with these dolphins. So dolphins don't want to fetch. Dogs want to fetch, right? Dogs love it when you throw a, a stick really far and they have to work to get it and they have to sprint and they run really far and they catch it midair. That's like dogs love that, right? Dolphins hate that. Dolphins don't want to play fetch with you. Dolphins want to play catch with you. They want they want you to throw the ball directly to them. They catch it in their, in their jaws and then they kind of spit it back at you and catapult it by closing their jaw and spit it back at you. Right. And if you throw the ball like two feet away, they'll glare at you, and then they'll look at the ball, and then they'll glare at you, and then they'll very slowly get the ball. Like, they're very good at communicating, huh, screwed up, didn't you, mister? Like, you know they're pissed <laughs> off at you. That is awesome. And, and so I'm, I'm playing, there's one dolphin, Sandy, I'm playing catch with her, and she spits the ball back at me, but she, she lowballs it, so the ball glances off the rail and and pings off the rail and comes back and smacks her in the forehead and so she does this and she glares at me and then she 
goes underwater and sulks at the other end of the pool. And oh. I was, I was like, damn you dolphin. You know, that was, that's not on me. That's on you. You know, that's on you. Don't frame me for that. You screwed up. You're the one that hit the rail. Not me. That's not me. That's Sandy. And like, I have never felt more confident that that dolphin knew what was going on and wanted to put that guilt on me. Like it wasn't, this wasn't like a situation where like a dog screws up and thinks that you heard it. No, the dolphin knew she screwed up. So it was, yeah, fascinating experience. That is funny. It sounds like you love animals, big fan of animals. Uh, Tell us about the dog that in Dallas that you tried to adopt a blind dog. What, What happened there? Yeah, Dottie. I tr- I tried real hard. This is when I was uh, working with you guys. I uh, I would I volunteered at the Dallas Animal Services uh, a, a, a couple two or three times a week. I was over there a lot. I would just I would swing by there after work and I would uh, take dogs on walks. And I've 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 done that several times. Like I, when I was in college, I did that. Uh, when I was in college, I would I would go to the local animal shelter and I would just I'd go give me your ugliest dog, <laughs> theorizing that that dog probably got the least amount of attention and. Yeah. Um, so I, I was I was doing that at the Dallas Animal Services. Although I I also had a it wasn't completely altruistic. In fact, it was eighty percent not altruistic because I was scoping out dogs because I wanted to adopt one. So I'd go there two or three times a week. But I was also able to you know play with the dogs and kind of get an idea for uh, which one of them I thought would do well. And I was looking at a puppy, but I thought about it and I was like, I'm working fifty to sixty hours a week. Yeah. And I'm new in town, so when I am when I'm not working, I'm usually out because I, I want to go meet people and go dancing and do comedy and stuff. So I was like, it really seems unfair to have a puppy. That just seems like a not fun life for a puppy. But there was this one dog. It was a seven-year-old Labrador Retriever that was blind. And I thought, seven-year-old blind dog seems kind of my speed right now. That seems like a dog that, that could get on board the heat and lifestyle and would probably be perfectly happy to like just sleep on a couch all day. And then I'd come home and be like, come on, we're going to go on a walk. Don't bump into stuff. <laughs> and, uh, got, got along well with this dog, Dottie. She's, she, uh, has glaucoma. And so she's partially blind. Um, but she could like, I don't know whether she could, she could see my f- shadow or she could smell me. But like, if I walked by, she'd get really excited. Like she could sense Aww. me nearby. She liked me a lot. And, and we got along well. And, um, I fully intended to adopt her. I had, uh, I bought all the dog stuff and I, I was thinking really hard about like how do I make a good life for a blind dog? And I was gonna get I was gonna adopt her and I was gonna um, get a water bowl with a fountain in it so that she could hear where the water was. Oh, that's cool. And could kind of sonar her way around. And then I was planning to uh, walk her around the apartment several times so she could kind of map out the the general schematics of it. They now make these harnesses for dogs. Uh, there's like kind of like a nose guard in front of the dog, like a like a like a band in front of their head that connects to their shoulders so that if they bump into something, they're, they're knocked on their shoulders rather than their face, which is far more pleasant. So I was going to get one of those. And then the other thing I was going to do, because she's a Labrador retriever, uh, and um, lab, labs want to retrieve regardless of whether they can see or not. They like they like fetching balls, and they like bringing it back to you. It doesn't matter if they can find them or not. And I, and I would take her, and I'd go play fetch, and she was horrible at it because she was blind. <laughs> like, she wasn't good at it. Like, she'd wander around and bump into, bump into the wall, and eventually she'd waddle over and she'd stumble onto it and touch it with her foot and then bring it back to me. And so my my plan was I, I, I bought a dozen tennis balls and I was just going to leave all of them in the yard and then be like, here's the ball! And I'd throw it. And then if she stumbled onto any of them, I'd be like, yay! You got the ball! Good job, Dottie! Oh, uh, no. So I had really thought about that. Uh, but I, I was going to get her uh, about this time. I, it, was, it was Easter weekend. Uh, I, I came in and it was like, hey, I'm going to get Dottie. And some... Lab rescue group had adopted her, and f- for 
privacy reasons I don't fully comprehend, they, the uh, Dallas Animal Services could not give me their information because I was like, well, if it's a lab rescue group, can you just tell them I want that lab? And they, they were like, sorry, like we can't pass on messages between any, anybody that's like, like the, the privacy is guaranteed to the adopter. So I hope she got adopted by a nice family because I was willing to do it. And uh, uh, now that I'm moving to Tulsa, I'm going to restart the search and get some other dog. Well, good luck, man. That, Thank that's, you. That's kind of sad, though. I mean, I hope that's not just what they tell you. They just give you that story. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's code for we put her down. No, I. You know, I. I. I know them. They. It, it is a kill shelter. Although I have to say this because everybody, having been in that world, everybody's like, it's you, you. didn't get it from a kill shelter, did you? Like they don't want to kill dogs. Like pound mm-hmm. pounds kill dogs. Pounds pounds like you basically have a week and then they execute the dog. Pounds are very sad. Yeah. Um, like like animals like they're like they try so hard. Dallas Animal Services uh was over like was overwhelmed like like Dallas goes through a crazy like they get like 20,000 dogs a year uh something like that in Dallas Animal Services now there's really good um turnover like very few of the dogs stay there for more than three weeks like there's people people release dogs and those people anybody if you ever release a dog on the highway you should be shot like right. I would just like bam just shoot you dead because you're basically you're saying I'm going to sentence this dog to death but I'm going to do it by letting the dog be lonely and sad and bewildered and starved to death till it gets hit by a car like you're a you're a horrible person if you do that um, a lot of people do uh, and, and there's a fair amount of people that I'll, I'll say understandably um, can't handle the dog for whatever reason they 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 come into bad financial services or or they just they realize the dog is too much work and they will take it and responsibly drop it off at the animal shelter and there's a lot of that that goes on every year so Dallas animal services they don't want to put any dog down yeah um, but and and they they try very hard like they'll start putting two dogs in a cage and things like that um, because they don't want to release the dogs nor do they want to kill them so they'll they'll be oversaturated the dogs that they do kill, uh, are, are dogs that have been there for a long time that have a low quality of life that aren't going to get adopted, that aren't having a good time. Uh, like there was a dog there, um, oh, there was, who did get adopted, by the way. This is a nice story, but there was, a, there was a German Shepherd I would go see, and this German Shepherd hated being at the animal shelter, like just clearly was scared, didn't like it. And I would take this dog on a walk, and the dog would just roll over and cry, and I would just hug the dog because the dog just hated it so much. And the dog got adopted. She's been adopted by a family. She's good, right? For a dog that doesn't get adopted, that's like that, that just is like in dog prison, and it's angry and sad and not having a good time, they will eventually put those dogs down. So Dottie wasn't in that category. So I don't think she was executed. I think she got she's she's either living at the president of a lab rescue group's house or she's been adopted by some nice family. Yeah. Sell me on your comfort food cheese. Is it a specific kind of cheese that you like or is it all kinds of cheese? I'm pretty big on all kinds of cheese. Uh, it depends on my mood. Uh, I, uh, I I look like a giant rat. I will just eat blocks of Jarlsberg cheese. <laughs> like, Jarlsberg looks like that, you know, that wedge of cheese that you see in cartoons. It looks just like that. I will just eat those, like a whole rind of them in one sitting. I love them. I, I, I really like getting uh, um, a camembert cheese. There's an art to it. you got to microwave it just to where it's it's warm and soft you don't want it to melt you just want it to be warm and soft i'll do that put it on crackers Mm. um i really like um oh what is it it's uh munster cheese same thing munster cheese is great warm Mm -hmm. you can get munster cheese just warm and soft oh it's so good eat that with an olive by itself so tasty um and then uh and then i like me some stinky blue cheese i like stinky blue cheese that's so stinky if you turn off the lights it will crawl off the plate and try to escape i i think that's great i really like saint auger 
Um, St. Augur's great. I think people usually think of Stilton cheese. Stilton's pretty good, but but St. Augur's like is a like a step beyond Stilton cheese. It's like like St. Augur's like Stilton cheese. It's creamier and it's bluer. Mm. And uh, and I'll I'll eat me some of that good stuff. You have crossed paths with multiple celebrities over the years. Tell us about opening up for William Shatner. Yeah, that was cool. There there was a event in Las Vegas called Freedom Fest, which was a like a political event. I was there the same year that William Shatner was there. He was the headliner. Now, William Shatner is not that political, but nonetheless, he's who they booked to be the headliner. And they had me do warm-up for him. He did two sets. He, he did the, the really big thing. It was really funny, by the way, watching William Shatner prepare for this because I'm backstage with William Shatner, and the organizer, Mark Skousen, comes out and is like, Mr. Shatner, we're about ready for you to come out. There's like, I don't know, 5,000 people or something that he's about to talk to. And Shatner goes, great. What is this about? And Skousen's like, well, it's a political thing, and like most of the people here are, you know, very socially open, very socially liberal, but very fiscally conservative, very limited government. And he's like, okay, uh, compromise, got it. And just comes out there and completely wings, just talks for 15 minutes about horses and making Star Trek four. It was amazing, <laughs> amazing. Like zero preparation went into it. He literally didn't even know where he like he he knew where he was in the sense that he was mentally coherent, but he had not bothered to check until That's he was like like walking out on the stage and could do it because he's William Shatner. And then uh, there was a, a smaller VIP event uh, where they brought in like um, you know donors and sitting congressmen and things, and he was the the he was the speaker for that, and I got to do warm up for him there, and so did my whole political routine and when I was through you know went and had dinner William Shatner uh, did his speech and I, I slunk over to him after the speech I was like hey Mr. Shatner can I get a picture with you and he went you're very funny and I was like yes yes <laughs> if anybody ever tells me I'm not funny for the rest of my life I can tell them what starship do you drive because Captain Kirk said I'm funny <laughs> that's um, awesome yeah so that was no that was really cool I like that is like something that I will take to my grave with me that is such a, a nice moment to get to meet him and sure. just such a a big confidence booster you hung out with meatloaf in a green room how did that go I did uh he's a super nice guy uh-huh. I really like Meatloaf. seems like he's it. a really yeah. cool dude he yeah he's he's a really cool guy he's like um uh, he's actually he's really Christian, which I didn't realize, but it kind of makes sense if you listen to his music. It really has that kind of gospel, like you know, very emotional kind of like black gospel feel to it. And I think he'd gone to a black gospel church. I want to say that's that he grew up in that environment, S- something like Church of God or something like like maybe speaking in tongues, something like that. But he but he was and is very Christian, feels very strongly about it. He's I'm I'm kind of you know I'm I'm listening to him and I feel uncomfortable intruding, but he, I'm about to I finally work up the nerve to talk to him and I go, uh, Mister Loaf. And he goes, it's it's meatloaf, and I was like, oh okay, meatloaf. <laughs> like I, I'm curious, how do you how do you summon all of this creativity on tap? Like how do you just be this creative all the time and this on all the time? And he goes, there's this game I play to keep me sharp. And I was like, whoa! And they're like, uh, meatloaf, we're ready for you. And I'm I, like, the whole time he's doing this interview, I'm like, because I'm in the green room, by the way. This is back when I'm a writer at Fox Business. Uh, I'm like, what? Like what game is he talking about? Like it, it's got to be some super cool game built for people that go to Davos, you know, or, or like something that only like Madonna and Elton John get to play. And, and he comes off and I was like, what game is it? And he's like, oh, it's called Swords and Gladiators. I play it on Facebook. You get more swords <laughs> if you have more Facebook friends. And it was just this stupid game that he plays. It's just like a game. And uh, he, no, he was really cool. He gave me, he signed uh, his latest album. He gave me a copy of it. And he went, Andrew, listen, I want you to listen to this album. You're not going to get it. The first time you listen to it, it's not going to make sense to you. You're not going to get it. Listen to it again. Listen to it all the way through again. Second time, it's still not going to make sense to you. It's not going to come together. The third time you listen to this album, 
it's going to come together. It's going to change your life. And I still haven't, still haven't got around to it. It was like he was giving me a homework assignment. And I was like, thank you so much. But that seems like a little bit more effort that I'm willing to put into a musical album. But he was a cool guy. Big uh, fan. Nice guy. That's fun. That's good. Okay. You mentioned being a writer at Fox Business. Um, what, what did you do over there? So I wrote for Kennedy, who's still at Fox Business. Yeah. I started out on a show called The Independence, and uh, and then uh, she carried me over when that stopped, and she started uh, the eponymous show Kennedy. And so uh, as her writer, um, I was doing a bunch of things. I mean, I, I, I handled the green room um, and you know brought guests in and all that, but the main thing that I was doing was I would come to the morning meeting with ideas for segments we should do, ideas for guests, ideas for stories. And then once we did that, it was my job to research a couple of them and give them to her in a very digestible manner, brainstorm ideas for monologues around with her, and then and then to write anything on the teleprompter, which was the ultimate main thing. Now, she, I would say Kennedy writes her own monologues, or at least did while I was there. I, I got to write a couple for her that were really funny, and she liked them enough to do them, but she likes to be very involved in the monologues. It was more, that side of it was more brainstorming and, uh, you know, kicking around ideas with her, but she likes to execute it because she's got a very lyrical style. But uh, any, anything else, you know, writing intros, writing outros, uh, writing things like that um, that, that are going to be on teleprompter. Um, I, I was apparently very good at being able to take complex ideas and distill them down to a concise, easily digestible format in the voice of somebody else. And it turns out that that is not a super common skill set to have. It, it's difficult to take something like, I don't know, lug nut tariffs or uh, <laughs> immunity clauses with cops and, and figure out what that means and basically explain it in three sentences right at the top of the show and do it in somebody else's voice. And so that was my job. Okay, very good. You've talked to Buzz mm -hmm. Aldrin about aliens. Is this kind of like the John Glenn on the Frasier episode type uh, conversation? Yeah. Or how did, how did this go? I So I had I'd done some side work for a British media company uh, at, at one point. Just I moonlighted when I was at Fox Business. Occasionally I would write these funny scripts for this group. And one of the, one of the scripts was they wanted me to write a, a script on um, astronauts who've seen aliens. And I will say there are like several astronauts who claim to have seen UFOs. And there are a couple that uh, have, I shouldn't say, none of them have claimed to have seen aliens, but there are a couple of living astronauts who do think that there are extraterrestrials and they've visited us and that kind of thing. None of those guys, incidentally, claim to have seen UFOs. The, the, the two are unrelated, but there's, there, there's some interesting stuff there. One of the bits in there was um, Buzz Aldrin, and there's, a, uh, there's this clip on the Sci-Fi channel that they gave me that sounds like Buzz Aldrin saying like, hey, there's this thing outside and it, it seems to be moving in a way that's intelligent. I don't know what it is. And it, but it's like a 30-second clip. Now, I've been in media long enough to know that's a little bit suspicious. If you're mm -hmm. taking a 30-second clip of something really provocative, that, that sounds to me like they probably selectively took it out to make it sound like Buzz Aldrin's going, oh, my God, an alien. But if right. you were to listen to five minutes of it, it would be very apparent that it's not that. And that was my theory. So I wanted to know, um, does, did Buzz Aldrin actually see a UFO? And does he think they're aliens? Because if, if Buzz Aldrin does say, yes, I don't like to talk about it, but I saw something and I don't know what it was, but it was intelligent and it was piloting a, an autonomous vehicle. I mean, that's it was world changing if Buzz Aldrin says he saw that. Right. Um, but I also know uh, Buzz is a Buzz, Buzz has handlers with him and, and they are very defensive of Buzz. Uh, they do not want him uh, being made fun of. Um, I think uh, the colonel's doing very well from what I can tell, but you know, he's like 80, like he's, mm -hmm. um, he, he occasionally is like, you know, kind of like a little, little older 
And so they're there to kind of make sure he doesn't get into trouble and to make sure you don't take advantage of him. So I don't want to go in hot and go like, Colonel, you believe in aliens? Because like I, I know what they're, they're going to block me and, and right. kick me out of the green room or whatever. They're going to stone color me. So I, I tell them an abbreviated version of what I just say. I say, I watched this clip on the Sci-Fi Channel, and you appear to be talking about UFOs. But it was short, and it made me wonder if they'd taken you out of context. And I wanted to see what you thought about that. So I wanted to give him the silver platter of, you're not crazy. I don't think you're crazy. Would you like to confirm this for me? <laughs> uh, and uh, did that. And he went, you're absolutely right. I know the clip you're talking about. It was taken out of context. And he gives me this very intricate five-minute engineering explanation of how the panels come off of the craft, but they're going at the same velocity. But because they're they're going out at a slightly different angle combined with, like, I, I couldn't follow any of it. But it seemed very coherent, uh, this explanation for why why that was happening. Or maybe um, he had just been rehearsing that for 50 years, Andrew. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe so. Well, no, but the, the cool <laughs> thing though was that like at this point though, I've like I've communicated to both him and his handlers that I don't think he's a crank. Right. And I'm not interested in making him look like a crank. So, I wait about 5 minutes when he's getting makeup. I swing by the makeup room and I'm like, "Hey, out of curiosity, do you think there are aliens? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And I was like, <laughs> really? Actually, he had the exact same position that I had and still have. He's like, if you think about the, the sheer amount of stars there are in the universe, like just the crazy amount of stars in our galaxy alone and the amount of stars that have planets, even if a fraction of the stars that have planets, if, if in, in just a fraction of those planets have water and a fraction of those have life, you'd still have thousands of planets with life and probably intelligent life so yes like it would be there's there's it's almost a mathematical certainty that there's intelligent life out there but as it come to earth no and then he also has the exact same theory i have which he's like if you think that aliens are visiting earth you also have to think every government on earth has entered a global conspiracy to suppress this information and that just doesn't seem likely and i was like right like france like, if France could make us look bad by revealing <laughs> aliens, they would. And he's like, yeah. So I uh, yeah. So I got to have a good conversation with him about that. That's good stuff. So tell us about this writer, Douglas Adams. He wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. Very, okay. very funny uh, British humorist. He wrote that. He wrote a detective series called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Um, and he's yeah, someone you would funny, like to um, go back in history and meet, if you could. I would love to. Yeah, I've, I have been very fortunate, very, very fortunate in that I've got to meet a lot of the people that I have really wanted to meet. Uh, I got to meet Buzz Aldrin, which was amazing. I've got to meet uh, William Shatner. And I've got to meet like two of my top humor writing heroes who are alive and kicking ass, PJ O'Rourke and Dave Barry. I've got to uh, I've interviewed uh, both of them on the political orphanage. And uh, I, I've interviewed PJ like three times now. And, and uh, I don't know if I'd say we're buddies, but we're definitely chummy when we talk. He's a really great guy. And, and, and uh, Dave Barry is just a, a prince. He is just a, a wonderful, if, if I might demure for a moment, I, I met, I've met Dave Barry twice, once when I interviewed him, and I met him at a book signing a few years ago. He was in New York, and uh, I came up to him at the book signing, and I'm shaking because I, Dave Barry is so <laughs> formative to my sense of humor. Uh, and I come up, and I'm physically shaking, and I'm sweaty and weird-looking, <laughs> and I go, Mr. Barry, I, um, uh, you know, I grew up reading your books, and you've been really really formative on my sense of humor. And I, uh, you know, I, I am a humorist and I'm trying to, you know, make a living at this. And I just, I look up to you so much. Can, um, can I hug you? And any other person would have been like, probably gone like, Hey man, let's just shake hands. Or like, you know, maybe called security. Right. And Dave Barry bear hugs me. And then he whispers in my ear, 
it's okay because we're both wearing condoms. And I was like, oh, wow, he's even cooler than I thought. He's a great guy. So I, I've, been, I've been very, very, and I got to interview him for an hour on the political orphanage oh, cool. uh, and, and talk to him about uh, politics. Turns out he's libertarian mm -hmm. and uh, talk to him about um, comedy. I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. It's just a wonderful moment in life. Um, unfortunately, Douglas Adams died when I was in high school. And so yeah. I, I had no chance to meet him, uh, but he would have been great. He, I, I read, so there's this book called Mostly Harmless that I picked up when I was in Third, third grade is the first time I read Mostly Harmless, and uh, uh, or maybe fourth grade, fourth grade at the absolute latest. And it was it, it's such a warped sense of humor that mm -hmm. it, it kind of sunk into my psyche and informed how I find things funny. And, uh, and I ended up reading that book probably five times. I think I've probably read that book more than anything else and um, went on to read all of his series. And he just... Uh, like a little bit of it's less funny to me now because so much of it's random and and the, the the joke's not funny to you if if you're not surprised by the randomness anymore. Right. In um, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, there's a moment where he's trying to make sense of a Chinese calculator that he bought like back when you know calculators weren't nearly as uh, he, I think he wrote it in the 70s or 80s, so they were they were a little bit more a little bit uh, fewer on the ground. Right. And he's reading this manual and it says push the green button. And there's a red button that has the words green on it. Like it's, it says the word green, but it's a red button. And like something about that I found very funny. He's a funny writer. <laughs> That's good stuff. Okay. So I'm looking over your bucket list. If you had to decide between one or the other, would you rather be known as Lord Andrew or Sir Andrew? Ooh. You can only choose one, man. If I was, I, well, I guess I'll go with Lord since it, it's the highest highest ranking one. I, uh, I don't know if it's going to happen now, sadly. I, I had an in for a while. There was a. Um, a, a small uh, micro-nation called Hut River Province or Hut River Principality in Western Australia uh, that I was a diplomat for for about five years. Uh, I was dating a, a young lady from Australia, and we, we went out to Australia for a month, visited her family and stuff. We went out to Hut River because I really wanted to meet Prince Leonard. I thought he was a cool dude. Basically, long story short, imagine a farmer in Kansas effectively seceding an entire county from America and forming his own monarchy. That's basically what Leonard did, like, and pulled it <laughs> off for 30, 30 years. Like, wow. he, for 30 years, he was able to do this where he didn't pay taxes. He, he, he wasn't subject to wheat quotas. Like, he just did his own thing. I think he did pay some taxes, but he'd always, like, list them as foreign aid to the nation of Australia. I'm very impressed with this guy. And uh, yeah. I went out there, we kind of hit it off. And he, um, uh, I, I got citizenship, and he made me uh, his... Basically, as consul to New York, you can't do that without um, mutual diplomatic recognition. So he couldn't call me consul. So he made me his honorary special envoy to New York. And I think if he'd stuck around longer, I think, and I'd done a little bit more charitable work, I might have become Sir Andrew. But uh, unfortunately, um, uh, Prince Leonard shuffled off this mortal coil about three years ago, uh, the ripe old age of ninety-four, I believe, and. Um, uh, COVID uh, broke the back of the principality. Prince Graham, his successor, uh, dissolved the principality about four months ago. So I no longer have any in for this. I think the best I can probably hope for at this point is if any of your listeners have an in with the secretary of the uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky, okay. uh, uh, maybe, maybe I can become a Kentucky colonel. That could be fun. Then I could be Colonel Heaton. Colonel Heaton. All right. If anybody listening out there, has but yeah, an Sir, Sir Andrew or Lord Lord Heaton both sound pretty good to me. Yeah. Maybe I'll. I don't know. Maybe at some point I'll, I'll get to save Prince William from getting hit by a bus or something, and I'll, I'll get that. <laughs> so tell us about your two podcasts. Um, you've got the Political Orphanage, 
and alienating the audience. We touched on them earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, give us a kind of a, a, a Cliff Notes version of what people could expect if they go and check out your podcasts. Right. So if you check out Alienating the Audience, I really like getting into the meaning of science fiction. So I like watching Dune and going, okay, this is really about like OPEC and it's about oil, like the spices of metaphor for petroleum or looking at uh, the Matrix and going, you know, what's what's the what's the philosophy they're playing around with here? Is it Plato's cave? Is it, you know, can, can we ever know if we are real or not? Like, I, I like getting into the deep stuff. I find that fun. So if you enjoy science fiction and and, and I'll, I'll say I, I mostly bring on comedians to do this. So it's it's light banter, but we're dealing with deep subjects. So if right. if you get like really absorbed in science fiction and you like getting sucked into that, then check out Alienating the Audience. Um, the, the, the main one I do, which I will highly commend to everybody, is the political orphanage. And I have two parts to that. On Wednesdays, I do interviews with authors and I do interviews with uh, policy wonks and big thinkers and experts and things like that. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to come up with solutions to problems instead of just getting in partisan slap fights. I think that a lot of the media landscape is making a lot of money off of saying liberals are stupid or conservatives are evil and just saying that ad nauseum again and again and again without any real analysis or insight just relentless red team good blue team bad or blue team good red team bad and i i'm exhausted by that i don't think it serves any purpose um i would much rather figure out how to solve things and i and i i don't view myself as a conservative or or a progressive i don't think i'm in that dichotomy i don't think i fit in those boxes and i know a lot of people that Maybe they're a little bit conservative or they're a little bit libertarian or whatever that thing is, but they just they don't fit in those boxes either. Right. So I'm building a show for them. And I'll add for people that just want to be exposed to other ideas. Uh, like I uh, want to like I, it's really funny to read my hate mail because I have, I think, the nicest audience in America. Like my hate mail basically consists of um, Mr. Heaton. I really enjoy your show, but I took great issue. With you on your position on, I don't know, minimum wage. Uh, I, I thought you were incorrect. Here are the reasons that I think you're incorrect. Here is a guest I recommend you bring on to the program. Huh. Uh, which, like, by the way, like, if, if hate mail is basically just, here are reasons I think you were wrong, <laughs> I love you, and here, here's how you can help the program. Like, I, like, I'm amazed that that is generally the bad stuff I get. But uh, what, 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 I, what I was surprised by is, um, particularly when I was at The Blaze doing Something's Off, a a huge amount of the people listening just really liked that I would bring on people I disagreed with Mm -hmm. and would talk to them and be like, hey, I think X. You seem to think Y. Y. And we would leave friends. Like, we would leave and I'd be like, well, you know, I think you're wrong, but I love talking to you and I loved hearing your viewpoint. So Wait a minute. um, Wait a minute. That's possible? It is possible to have a civil conversation with someone you disagree with politically? Stop. Yeah, it's it's rare, but it's possible. So I, I do that a lot, and I I, I do um, I I tend to like I'm really interested in um, a few different topics. Like I'll get into policy stuff, but I do a little bit less policy than I used to. I'm really interested in how people think. Like I'm really interested in how libertarians, conservatives, and progressives all separately analyze situations uh-huh. and the kind of rhythms of their thought and the the sort of timbre of what they're doing. I find that really interesting. And I think it's really helpful because when you understand that progressives or conservatives or libertarians think in a particular way, you disagree with them, but they're at least not baffling and crazy when they're explaining their position. You're like, okay, I get where you're, com- I think you're wrong, but I get where you're coming from right. now. And at least now I'm, I can, I can, we can pull that, that unknown element out. Um, 
I do a lot of that. Uh, I'm really interested in um, kind of, I, I feel that America is very alienated right now. I think that we've become, I mean, particularly during lockdown, but even before lockdown, I think that we've we've become very, very isolated and alienated and balkanized. And I think it's very bad for the country. And I think that as a result of that, politics has kind of become the new tribe and the new religion. And so it's way more important than it should be. And, and it's kind of winner takes all. And I'm, I'm interested in that. And um, uh, I, I'm I'm also just I'm really interested in just ways to fix problems. Like I feel like so much. Like I just had a, an author on a Catherine Gale who wrote a book called The Politics Industry, and we had an hour long interview where we're talking about ways to just like make government less screwed up. And a lot of the conventional thinking is, well, the problem is that there's too many of the bad team. We just need to elect our team, and if we could elect our team, then we'd fix things. And it's like, well, no, you've, we've done that. We've done that multiple times. We've done that where, like, just the Republicans are running the show and just the Democrats are running the show. And it, it turns out that the variables aren't the problem. The problem is the equation. The problem is that the system itself doesn't work very well. There, there are deep structural issues with American government, and it doesn't matter how many good, smart people you send in there. If you send them into a, a house with a bad foundation, those walls are going to be crooked. We're seeing that right now. And I, I'm really interested in identifying that and coming up with solutions to that and trying to figure out how do we fix this thing so that we're all able to live in a country that we we you know have opportunity in and we're safe in and we like and we can get along with our neighbors if they voted for Trump or they voted for Biden. So that's so that's the political orphanage. And I right. do that on Wednesdays. Then on Fridays, I completely let that rip and I just bring on comedians to kick around funny headlines. So if you're not in the mood for deep stuff, if you just want comedy, every Friday I do like a half hour comedy show where I bring on comedians. I find the weirdest dumbest headlines that I've, I've been able to locate that week. About 80% of them are out of the state of Florida, and we just make fun of them. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Okay, so that is the political orphanage and alienating mm-hmm. the audience to great podcasts from Andrew Heaton that you should check out. And I'm familiar with your presence on Twitter, at Mighty Heaton. Any other places mm-hmm. people can locate you? Nope, you've nailed them. I think the podcast and Twitter are the best place. All right. Well, very good. Andrew, thank you so much. Andrew Heaton, my guest this week on At The Mic. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, Keith. You know, it was really great getting to know Andrew. Uh, What an amazing life that guy has lived. Be sure to check out his podcasts. You got the political orphanage that he mentioned and alienating the audience uh, whenever you get a chance. Uh, He's a lot of fun. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider helping support it as the show moves forward. Uh, There are donation options available on the web uh, just by going to atthemikeshow.com. Over there, you can find uh, show archives. You can find information about our sponsors. I really hope you'll check it out, atthemikeshow.com. Well, next week, a Navy SEAL-turned-book author is my guest when Jack Carr joins me right here to have a conversation about his life. That's what we do here on At The Mike. I look forward to that, and I look forward to you joining us as well. Until then, please go be free, and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.